Well, hello, it is great to see you. Hope you're doing well. And uh, welcome also to our campuses and those of you joining us through Ada Bible Church online. And uh, to all the students and parents as well, hope it was a great first week of school for you. Hey, if you're new around here, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the teaching pastors and I get to lead us through uh, the next teaching in this series called The Church. But uh, before I jump into that, I wanna let you know what's coming. So uh, two weekends from now, I think it's September 11th, we're gonna be starting a new series, a four-week series, and I, I just wanna show you what this series is all about. Uh, it's called Navigating Emotions. Now, just let's be real. Who could use a little help right now with everything going on in our world with navigating emotions? I mean, I could use some help with this. So I'm excited about this series. What's it gonna be all about? Well, we're going to be taking a look at four emotions that can be a little challenging in life from a biblical perspective. So we're going to be talking about anger. We're going to talk about sadness, fear, and desire. So what do the scriptures have to say about how we navigate these emotions in a healthy way? So I hope you're able to join us. But beyond that, I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to invite somebody. Think of somebody in your life that uh, could use a conversation on navigating uh, emotions. Maybe it's a neighbor, friend, coworker, but specifically, I want you also to think of somebody that you used to bump into in the atrium at your campus. Somebody that was plugged in to Ada Bible Church and maybe, you know, over the last two years with everything that's going on, hasn't really plugged back in. Consider inviting that person as well. So that's a series coming up, Navigating Emotions. I think it's going to be great for our church. Looking forward to it. But for today, as we continue this series called The Church, uh, I got to take you back to a very important day in history. September 21st, 2002. Do you know what happened on that day? I got married, okay, this is about me actually. I brought a picture from my wedding day, look at this. Isn't my bride just lovely, Katie Buer, just. And uh, you know, something else about this picture that you might've noticed, it's a little strange. Um, this guy's hair, okay, uh, those are frosted tips, my friends. I, I really don't know what to say about that other than um, it was the early 2000s, everybody was doing it. And I know you're thinking, dude, your wedding, you had frosted tips on your wedding. I did. I, I don't know what, it happened. Uh, anyway, September 21st, 2002, Katie got to be a bride, and it was just an amazing day in our lives. And uh, the reason I'm telling you about this is because this series that we're walking through right now on the church, where we're looking at four different metaphors, uh, images that are presented to us in the New Testament about what the church is, what it's all about. Today, we're gonna be looking at this metaphor of bride. You've probably heard the phrase, the church is the bride of Christ. And that is true. We see this throughout the pages of the New Testament. So we're gonna be exploring what it means for us as a church body to be the bride of Christ. Now, as we jump into this, uh, I just recognize that the guys in the room, the dudes, some of you are going, yeah, I'm not putting that on. Uh, now, okay, so this is kind of strange for some of us, right? This idea of being a bride when you are a man, it's, it's just, it's strange. And so let's just acknowledge that. 
And uh, others of you, uh, you're just going like, how does it work that all of us together are the bride for Christ? Like, how does, how does that even work that all of us would be wearing a dress? So how, how does, it's confusing. And also, I, I just know for some of us, this idea of a marriage relationship with Jesus, it just comes with some baggage. Because for you, your marriage is not what you dreamed it would be. Others of us, uh, you were married. And still others, it's like your parents' marriage was such a train wreck that you're not exactly interested in entering into a marriage relationship. And so let's just acknowledge out of the gate that the, the bride of Christ imagery, it's a little strange and for some of us comes with some baggage. But with that said, I believe this, this metaphor that we're giving is so important for us. And if you're able to open your mind and your heart to what God might want to say to us today, I think this could be really important for our church, especially in this cultural moment where we find ourselves right now. So an image that we've been using in this series that I think has been really helpful is just, you know, on the one side, you got a church building. And what we've been trying to communicate in this series is when you think of the church, please think less it's a building. And less, a church is something I go to. No, no, no. As Jeff has been saying the last couple weeks, to be part of the church, it, it's something you belong to. It's something that you participate in together. And so what does it mean for us not to go to church, but to be a bride. That's what we're going to be exploring today. And uh, we're going to be looking at three descriptions that were given in the New Testament for what a bride is. And it'll help us understand what it looks like for us as Ada Bible Church to express ourselves as the bride of Christ. So let's jump in. The first place that we're going today is a city called Ephesus. So here's a map of uh, ancient Mediterranean world. You know, you got Turkey over here. This is Greece. And this city here, Ephesus, was a very important and large city in the first century. A major player in the Roman Empire. And uh, there was a Jesus community there. There was a church there. Now, the Apostle Paul, who we talk about all the time, an important leader in the early church, uh, someone whose writings make up much of our New Testament, Paul invested considerable time in the church here. And he wrote them a letter. We have that letter in our Bible. It's called Ephesians. He wrote that to believers living in and around Ephesus. And as he writes them, he's going to be coaching husbands on their relationship with their wives. And as we unpack this, we will see the first description of what it means to be the bride. So Paul is speaking to families, he's speaking to husbands, coaching them, and he gives them what I think were revolutionary words. And so here's what he wrote. He said, husbands, love your wives. Now I know what you're thinking. That's not revolutionary. <laughs> that is normal. That's like standard. That's what husbands are just supposed to do. Ah, that's because you and I live in a society that's already been revolutionized by the teaching of Jesus. This idea of husbands loving their wives, this was revolutionary in the ancient Roman Empire. And the reason is 
Because in the Roman Empire, you had Caesar who ruled over all. He's the emperor. And Caesar can do whatever he wants. He's all-powerful. And every Roman household was modeled after the household of Caesar. And so the man of the house, the patriarch, had absolute power over his house. And I hate to say it, it's difficult to even uh, accept this, but women, wives, were like second class. A husband ruled over his wife. He could do whatever he wanted to her. He could make her do whatever he demanded. And it was very common and expected that a husband would mess around on his wife, that he would pursue relationships outside of the marriage. That, that was just the way it worked in the Roman Empire because every house was modeled after Caesar's house. Now, here comes Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus, and he's coaching husbands on what it looks like to be a husband when you're a Jesus follower. And what he's saying here is, no longer will you model your home after Caesar's home. Now you will model your home after Christ. And so he says, husbands, love your wives. And then he gives them the standard of what that's supposed to look like. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. Christ loved and he gave. This is the standard of what it means to love your wife. And so what I'm getting at here is this first description. If we want to understand what it means to be the bride of Christ, here we go. A bride is loved. Here we go. A bride is loved. If you're going to understand what it means to be the bride of Christ, understand we get this image of Jesus loving his bride, the church. And how did he do that? He gave his life away for her. So husbands, if your wife needed a heart transplant, would you give her yours? Husbands, would you take a bullet for your wife? Would you die for your wife? Would you lay your life down for her? Because Jesus gave his life for his bride. And if we're going to understand what it means for us together to be the, the bride of Christ, we've got to understand that we are a bride that is loved. And I wonder who needs to be reminded of that today. Because I know there's a few students who, for the first week of school, it was not awesome. And you were really hoping that this year was going to be different than last year, but it's not. And you were hoping that people would treat you better this year, but they aren't. And so I need to remind you that Jesus knows what you're experiencing. He knows the rejection that you're walking through. And he loves you and he gave himself for you. I wonder who needs to be reminded of this today. Perhaps you're thinking, well, I was a bride. But the joy I experienced on that day has not translated into my marriage. And you don't feel loved. You don't feel desired. Most days you don't even feel seen. And can I remind you that Jesus sees you. 
He loves you and he gave himself for you. Friends, we are a bride that is loved. And I wonder who needs to be reminded of that. For you, maybe you're just going, well, I don't think marriage is in the cards for me. <laughs> it's hard to imagine a wedding at my age. And most of the time, you're okay with this. You've got great friends, meaningful work, and just wonderful community in your church. But there are days, there are days when you just go, I, I feel like nobody chose me. Nobody fell for me. But that is not true. Because Jesus gave himself for you. You are so loved. Friends, we are a bride who is loved by Jesus. This is part of what it means to be the bride of Christ. Let that truth sink into your life. Let that be the foundation of your life. You are loved. We are loved. So Paul, writing to these Ephesian believers, he's painting this picture of this relationship. And it's a marriage between the church and Jesus. And we know that a marriage is built on love. And so over and over on the pages of the New Testament, we read how Jesus loves his bride. But a question arises, how do we love him back? How do we reciprocate this love? How do we love Jesus as his bride? And this question will lead us into the second description that I want to share with you about what it looks like for us to be the bride of Christ. But to discover what that is, we need to take a trip across the Aegean Sea. So we started our time in Ephesus. Now we're going to head across the Aegean Sea over into Greece to Corinth. Corinth was another important city in the first century Roman world, and the Apostle Paul invested considerable time, I think a year and a half of his life, living in Corinth and teaching and guiding the church there. Now, this image of the bride of Christ, Paul taught that here in Ephesus. He also taught it here in Corinth. But he gave it sort of an interesting nuance because he talks about himself like a father and as the Corinthian church like a daughter that he's giving away in marriage. Now, of course, in the ancient world, they, these were arranged marriages. And so the way that it worked is like you got a set of parents over here with a daughter and a set of parents over here with a son. And when the kids are very young, they, the parents, they make this agreement, they make this contract that their kids are going to get married someday. And those of you who are parents are going, that's not a bad idea. And those of you who are kids are going, over my dead body. But that's the way it worked in the ancient world. Strange for us. But so Paul gives this, this picture, like he's the father and he's, he's giving the Corinthian church away in marriage. So let me show you uh, exactly what he wrote. He says, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And, and something I notice here is it's like the wedding hasn't happened yet. The wedding is in the future, and so it's like they're, well, the word they would have used in that culture is betrothed. It's like a stronger form of being engaged, and so it's like the church is betrothed to Christ. 
which makes sense also for us because Christ hasn't returned yet and the wedding hasn't happened. And, and what does Paul want? What does he desire for the church, his, his daughter? He, he wants the church to remain uh, pure, uh, to, be, to be faithful. A bride is faithful. This is the second description that we have of what it looks like to be the bride of Christ. He wants the, the church to remain faithful to Jesus. Now, uh, we understand what this looks like. So let me, let me take you back again to one of my favorite years of my life, uh, 2002, the year that I got married. Our wedding was in September, but we got engaged all the way back on Valentine's Day. And I know what you're thinking, you, you proposed on Valentine's Day? Like, how cliche is that? Well, I also proposed with a song, so just double cliche. But the joke's on you because she said yes. <laughs> so we got engaged on Valentine's Day, and then we spent the uh, remainder of our senior year of college as an engaged couple, and it, it was a wonderful time. And uh, we graduated, and then what happened is Katie moved back to Iowa, where she was from with her family, and I moved in with a friend uh, in uh, Grand Rapids area, in, in Caledonia, where I grew up. And so we had about four months of being an engaged couple where we were in a long-distance relationship. And so the idea when you're engaged is that you would remain faithful to each other. Now, for Katie, I don't think this was too difficult. She was in Iowa. I mean, it's just not a lot of people. <laughs> That's rude. I apologize. <clears throat> So anyway, the idea is to remain faithful. Now, can you imagine a scenario where at the beginning of that summer, I say to Katie, hey, uh, you know, in this time leading up to our wedding, like, I just feel like we should have some fun, you know? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be hanging out with some other girls, you know, there's some uh, ex-girlfriends from high school, I'm going to be spending some time with them. Like, how do you think that conversation would have gone? It probably would have involved the engagement ring flying in the air at my face and Katie going, have a nice life. You know, that, that's just not how you do it. No, to remain faithful, that's the idea. And so what I did do is spent all my money on long distance phone calls. Do you remember this? Long distance phone calls used to cost money. Like you had to go to the store, you had to buy this little card and like put this number into the phone. It, yeah, thank goodness for the iPhone. I spent all my money on long-distance calls and gas driving to visit her in Des Moines. Why? Because I wanted to be faithful to her, and we were. This is the idea. An engaged couple, a bride, remains faithful to Jesus. And Paul, he's worried about this. He's worried that his daughter, the church in Corinth, is, is not going to remain faithful to Christ. And so he writes about his fears to them. He says, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve and how the serpent deceives Eve and she eats the fruit. She, she isn't faithful to God. And, he, and Paul's going, I'm worried that this sort of thing is going to happen to you, that your minds will be deceived and led astray. And, and essentially what he says is that you would cheat on Jesus. He's worried that the church is going to cheat on Jesus. And, and what would that even look like? I mean, because we know what cheating on a spouse looks like. Like, 
And the husband's going to cheat on his wife. There's going to be another woman. There's going to be a different woman. And, And what Paul is saying here is actually very close to that because he's saying, I'm afraid you're going to fall for a different Jesus. It's like, different Jesus? What what do you mean? Well, that's actually exactly what he says. Look, he says, um, going on to the next uh, scripture, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus that we preach, a different Jesus, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So if you hear about a different Jesus, you put up with it easily enough. This last line tells me that this was not some theoretical situation. This was not some scenario that Paul was dreaming up. No, this was happening. This had happened. So, so here's what I believe happened in Corinth. Paul spent a year and a half there And then he left, and some other people moved in. A group of people that Paul called the super apostles, because these super apostles claimed that they were superior to Paul, and that their gospel was superior to Paul's gospel. And they taught that Jesus and his death on the cross was not sufficient. It was not enough to make you right with God. You also needed to become Jewish. As in, you needed to adopt Jewish practices and customs. It was like Jesus plus Jewish customs. And Paul's going, that's a different Jesus. That is a different gospel. Don't let your minds be led astray so that you would cheat on Jesus with this other Jesus. And you might be going like, wow, that's, That's unfortunate. It's very sad that the Corinthian believers fell into this, but we would would never do that. But friends, I think we're in danger of something very, very similar. I think this cultural moment right now, our church is in danger of falling for a different Jesus, of being unfaithful to Christ because we're following after this other Jesus. Well, well, the Jesus I believe in would never judge, he would never condemn a person because of their choices. Uh, the Jesus I believe in, well, he would never you know, criticize another person's beliefs, he would never say another person's religion is wrong. The, the Jesus I believe in Well, I think that he would accept me because he wants me to be happy and God is love after all. So I think he would approve of what I'm doing. Friends, I think these statements represent a different Jesus. And I think it's a Jesus plus American culture and practices. The danger I see us being in right now is that somehow we're putting together the real Jesus with what's culturally acceptable right now in our culture and combining them into what Paul would say, that's a different Jesus, that's a different gospel. Don't let your minds be led astray. Don't cheat on Jesus. Be faithful to him. 
And so my point is, how do you decide what Jesus would say or wouldn't say? How do you decide what Jesus would approve of or wouldn't approve of? What he would condone or what he would condemn? My point is, I kind of think Jesus should be the one who decides these things. And so do we know what Jesus actually said and what he actually did and what he actually taught? And so my challenge for us as the bride of Christ is to read the Gospels. These first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus' life. My challenge for us is that we would actually read them and study them and know them and let Jesus speak rather than let somebody else define who Jesus is and what he said or what he thinks. I just think this is so important because truth matters, especially right now as our culture redefines what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad and what is true and what is false. My hope for us as the bride of Christ that, that we would love him by being faithful to him. And friends, I think this really matters because there's a wedding coming. And with this idea, I wanna transition us toward, toward the third description of a bride. There is a wedding coming. And we know this because the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, paints this picture of the wedding day of Christ and his bride. And so we've been spending some time with Paul and his writings to the church in Ephesus and Corinth. Now I want to spend a little bit of time with a guy named John. John was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And uh, Jesus gave him a vision of the future. And we call this book Revelation, or sometimes John's Revelation. And if you've ever read it, you know it's kind of wild. Like it's full of vivid imagery, this picture of the future. Some of it is pretty difficult to translate, or sorry, interpret. But this, this picture that we're given, this glimpse of this wedding between Christ and his bride, I think, I think is going to be really helpful. Now, uh, John calls it the wedding of the lamb. And throughout his uh, letter, the revelation of John, the lamb is reference of Jesus. And so what we're talking about here is the, the wedding of Jesus and his bride. And so let's take a look at what John saw and what John heard in this vision. And so uh, as we begin this, I think, I think this is the angels. Uh, angels saying, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And so here it is, the wedding day has arrived, the, the wedding between Jesus and his bride. And we get this description of the bride. The bride has what? Made herself ready. Now, something I know to be true, whether it's a vision of a wedding or weddings in the first century world or weddings in our day is that a bride goes to considerable trouble to make herself ready. I mean, again, September 21, 2002, my wedding day. Can you imagine Katie waking up that morning going, hey, I'm getting married today. I should probably go shopping for that dress. Like, no, 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 that happened months before. I mean, she said yes to the dress probably in like April or something. 
And so what happens is a bride picks out the dress, and then the dress has to be fitted, and then you need the right shoes, and oh, we better make an appointment with the hairstylist, and don't forget about nails and makeup, oh, and flowers. There's so much that goes into a bride being prepared, getting herself ready for her wedding day. Why go to so much trouble? There I was, the afternoon of September 21st. I'm standing at the stage, and next to me is Katie's uncle, Mark, who was the pastor who officiated our wedding. And music begins to play, and Katie's mom stands up, and she turns toward the back of the church, and the entire crowd stands up and does the same. And then these doors open at the back of the church, and there she is, so beautiful, so lovely, so radiant, and every husband in the room and watching online knows exactly the moment I'm talking about, because you'll never forget it. It'll always be in your mind. It, it is like my favorite memory. One thing I know about a bride is that a bride is beautiful. And that's really, that's the third description I want to I show you, is that a bride is beautiful beautiful. And that's true for the bride of Christ. Because in John's revelation, this vision that he has, we are that bride. And he says, the bride has made herself ready. And he's talking about the dress. He's talking about the way that the bride looks. And if you were to read through the rest of that passage, you would discover that the dress, the bride's dress, is symbolic. It's symbolic for what John calls the righteous acts of the believers, the good deeds of the Jesus followers. And so the idea here is this, that individually, as we live lives that honor God, we make the bride look beautiful. Our lives lived to please God, it's like, that's the dress. And so you and I have the opportunity as individuals to live in such a way that we make the bride of Christ look beautiful to the world outside and also for our Lord. And so this is an incredible opportunity. And so I got to tell you, this deal about the bride's dress and the bride being beautiful, this impacts the way that we talk. There's a couple you know, in the church. That, that if you would have visited them, if you would have gone over to dinner at their house a couple years ago, you would have heard some of the most colorful language. I, it is amazing how certain curse words can be used as really any part of speech. But here's the deal. They had an encounter with Jesus. And they began to follow him. And he's transforming their lives. And now certain words, certain phrases, and certain jokes are being weeded out of their vocabulary. Yes, because they want to be a better example to their kids, but also because they want their words to honor their God. Understanding that when our lives honor him, we make the bride beautiful. And so this thing about the bride being beautiful, it impacts what we say. It, it impacts how we spend our time. There's a guy, his friends are giving him a hard time because he hangs out with middle schoolers like every Wednesday night. 
And they're going, dude, you know what's weird, right? Like, you're 34 years old, and you're hanging out with middle school. Like, the last half an hour, you've been talking about Fortnite and Pokemon exclusively. That's weird. And he doesn't care. Because he has a relationship with Jesus that's transforming his life. And what he wants is he wants to share that with these seventh grade boys so that they might know Jesus the way he does. And that they might be saved some of the heartache that he's endured in his life before he met Jesus. And so he's investing his time in them because because he wants the way that he spends his time and the way that he lives his life to honor his God because he understands and when he does that, it makes the bride beautiful. So the beautiful bride, it impacts how we talk, it impacts how we spend our time and how we serve and, and it impacts what we hide. Because for her, it began in early high school accidentally stumbling on a website. And what started out as curiosity grew into an addiction and just an entire hidden life. And she knows that it doesn't honor God. And so she's finally opened up to a trusted friend in her small group because she wants her life to honor God. Because she knows that when her life honors God, it makes the bride beautiful. And friends, you and I together, we are this bride. Now, I wonder how this hits you. Our lives making the bride beautiful. And I would imagine for some of us, it's just feelings of guilt, feelings of shame. Because there's some stuff going on in your life right now that you're going, not beautiful. Or perhaps it's your past before you met Jesus, and you're just kind of going, look, if it, was, if it was up to my life, the bride would be wearing sweatpants. It's not beautiful. Listen, I need to show you one final piece from this vision in Revelation that, that's so critical. Check this out. We'll look at the whole thing at once. The angels, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And here we go. Fine linen, he's talking about the, the dress. Fine linen, bright and clear, was given to her to wear. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Where did the dress come from? It was given to her. And who gave her the dress? Jesus. Look, here's the deal. When you place your trust in Christ and his sacrificial death on your behalf, he gives you a perfectly beautiful dress. And what I mean by that is that he takes away your impurity and gives you his purity. So that when God looks at you, he no longer sees your imperfection, but now sees the sinless perfection of his son, Jesus. You and I, Jesus made us beautiful. You don't have to make yourself beautiful. He already did it. And so all we're doing here is living out the identity that Christ gave us. And what hits me with this is when I think back to that moment when the doors opened at my wedding and I saw my bride. 
and just how beautiful and perfect she looked to me. Friends, I just believe that that is how Jesus sees us. Not because you're awesome. Not because I'm so good. No, because of what he has done for us. And so when you put these two pieces together of this vision, the bride has made herself ready and the dress was given. They're both true. They're both happening, but here's how it works. We don't live lives to honor God because we have to, because we're obligated in order to earn something from him. No, we live beautiful lives because he made us beautiful and we're expressing our gratitude to him for what he has done. We want to honor him out of gratitude and when we do this, we make the bride beautiful to the world and to our Lord. This is what it means to be the bride of Christ. To understand that you are so loved. And what's our role? How do we love him back? We're faithful to him. And we live lives that honor him because he made us beautiful. This is what it means to be the bride. And right now, as we close our time, I want to give us an opportunity to express our gratitude to him. We're going to celebrate communion together and remember how he loved us, gave himself <clears throat> for us, and made us beautiful. And so I'm going to pray for you. And as I do, campus leaders, campus pastors, and each of our environments will come to the stage and guide us through communion. And so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you as your bride who you love and who you made beautiful God we are incredibly grateful that you would do this for us God we desire to express our gratitude and love to you by being faithful to you would you help us by living lives that honor you God we need your strength and God, now in these moments, we want to show our gratitude to you by remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. God, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.